This is Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Let's get into it. All right, guys, today I've got a special guest on the show. His name is Gabe Wicks. So he has been a part of the Nashville, Tennessee creative scene for over 25 years at this point. He's worked in film, video, and the publishing world. So he actually joined Thomas Nelson Publishing in 2002, and they were purchased by HarperCollins in 2011. And he's been the VP of Creative Services, their creative services group, for a very, very long time. And he spends most of his time on the audiobook side of things. So this guy produces around 900 audiobooks a year. And when we talked in this interview, you know, just a few years ago, it was, it was less than half of that. But audiobooks are absolutely, absolutely exploding. And one of the books and one of the projects that we talked about is this right here. This is called Country Gospel. So you're actually seeing this. These are actually CDs in a case, but you can get the digital version as well. But these are country music stars from yesteryear and from today reading the New Testament of the Bible. Okay. And so I'm actually going to read through who is on this project. And then I want to talk about this inter interview because it was very interesting. So we had Rory Feek, Charlie Daniels, Hillary Scott, Cheryl White, Sharon White, Randy Owen, Carly Pierce, Tracy Lawrence, Linda Davis, Neil McCoy, Ricky Skaggs, Lauren Elena, Josh Turner, and T.G. Shepard. And so that I actually read them in the order of how they were reading different books of the Bible. And so it was such a cool project. Like whenever I found out about this, I was like, yeah, that'd be really cool to kind of talk to who was behind this. And so that's exactly what we did. But to be honest with this interview, guys, we flowed a lot. Like I literally just have this pad sitting here and I'm writing down all these questions that I hadn't planned to ask, but we talked about the evolution of publishing. We talked about the evolution of eBooks and how people thought eBooks were going to take over and how it's actually not really done. So it kind of like petered out at one point, but also just about audiobooks exploding, why men don't read books and why they really should, how publishers are kind of looking at different men's groups and, and things like that and how they can target them. But then we talked about Johnny Cash quite a bit. So as you guys know, I've talked about on the show quite a bit. I'm a Johnny Cash fan. You know, I've, I've always kind of liked his music or I found him in high school and I've kind of gone back and listened uh, to his backlog. And he's just such an interesting guy. He's one of those guys, like if you could go back and talk to anybody from history, he'd be, you know, on my short list of people I'd want to talk to. But, you know, he, Johnny Cash worked on this project where he read the New Testament of the Bible. That is one of my prized possessions was whenever I got that as a gift. And he actually uh, knows people that worked on that project. So we talked about some behind the scenes Johnny Cash stories. Uh, we talked about a book that Johnny Cash wrote that he worked on the audio version of. So that was really interesting. But then in maybe one of the best parts of this entire interview is he told me a story about Charlie Daniels, because I told you Charlie Daniels is part of this project. He's reading the book of Mark, but the timing as, as we're talking about this project during the interview, I'm like, wait a minute, Charlie Daniels died. And they, I think he died like before they started this project. Like how did that work out? You guys have got to listen to this story about Charlie Daniels and how they got all that uh, squared away. But I mean, we talked about Josh Turner and how, you know, how he's really big in this space and how they were able to kind of get him even as, you know, as famous as he is and as successful as he is, get him to sit down and do this. And how he was so excited to dig into the scriptures and do those different projects. I asked him about Hillary Scott, because obviously Lady Antebellum, they changed her name to Lady A and was that weird? And he kind of gave us some interesting behind the scenes looks on, on her and also her mom and kind of the type of people that they were. You know, we talked about future projects and there's some spoilers that he kind of gave up at the end because I kind of, you know, I kind of forced it in a very, very nice way. But there's some really, really cool projects that Gabe is working on right now that are going to be for the audiobook space. And so, guys, this was such a cool conversation because I told him off air, I was like, hey, we're just going to weave and kind of figure out where it goes. And we weaved into and out of some really, really cool subject matter. So I think you guys will really, really enjoy it. So without further ado, let's get into it. Gabe Wicks, welcome to Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. Man, thanks. Glad to be here. Well, I already, to you, those of you just listening to this, this isn't going to make any sense, but I've already complimented you on your Pearl Snap shirt, which, hey, you've lived in Nashville for like multiple decades. So if you, I guess, what percentage of your wardrobe is Pearl Snap shirts? Because I'm oh, sure it's significant. Probably more than my wife would like me to have. Uh, okay. But it, you know, it's, it's a good, it's, it's double digits for sure. Fair enough. Fair enough. Well, we're going to get into a lot of the work that you've done while there in Nashville, because obviously it has a lot to do with the, the country music scene and just the publishing scene, all kinds of different things. But something that you just mentioned to me, and I was like, wait a minute, let me record and then we'll talk about it. Is, is you were kind of going through 
our backlog of our show. And you notice that John Eldridge has been on here a lot. I think he's been on here more than anybody else. He's a personal mentor of mine. I love that guy. Just love what he's done for the men's ministry space overall. But I guess you came from the Thomas Nelson side of things. I think you were with Thomas Nelson in the early 2000s. Obviously, John has put out several books with Thomas Nelson, but you're saying that you've worked a lot with him on like video projects and different things. So I guess, tell me about how you got connected with John. Yeah, I uh, my first couple of years at Nelson were mainly in the marketing area, and I was doing a lot of video production for the company, and so that meant doing uh, a lot of our book trailers. Mm. And uh, John was, man, he was red hot at that point. He had, he had kind of, I mean, Wild at Heart was already out, and uh, Sacred Romance was already out, and so he it was he was kind of hitting that that full stride, and uh, and so we were putting a lot of money into to his marketing efforts, and so. One of the first times I worked with him was a lot of fun. I, I got to go out to Colorado for a few days and we, we actually rented a castle and filmed him and Stacy on the grounds of the mm-hmm. castle. And it was, I was used to shooting video. That was what we typically had done in Nashville. And that was like, man, we're going to shoot this thing on film. We're bringing out 35 millimeter. We're going to do this thing like they would do it in Hollywood. And uh, it, it was a blast. I had, I had fun working with John. He, I had just had my first son. And I asked him for advice on raising boys. And he, the first thing he said was, let them blow things up. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you, you got to let boys get dirty. Like I've got a two-year-old and a seven-month-old, both boys. And so like as of the recording of this anyway, and you know, they're, <laughs> to be clear, they're boys forever. As of the recording of right now, those are their ages. For any of you thinking that we're doing the whole gender fluid thing, yeah, you're going to miss out if you haven't listened to the show before. But um, that's the thing that whenever you look at stuff from guys like that, it's like, no, you have to let your kids kind of blow some stuff up. You have to let them get hurt. And, you know, having that conversation with my wife, it's like, look, I'm watching him and I know what he's doing right now is dangerous, but it's not dangerous where his life's on the line. Because if his life's on the line, you swoop in there, you protect him. But otherwise, like, he needs to take care of business. I mean, just uh, a week ago, he was running down the street and she's like, I'm afraid he's going to fall. I'm like, oh, he's definitely going to fall. Like he's he's running and he can he can barely run right now. He's definitely going to fall. And wouldn't you know it, three seconds later, he fell, skinned his knee really, really bad. And, you know, he kept running and then he skinned it again. It's like, babe, he's going to be fine. Like, this is good. Like, this is just kind of a good learning experience. But so I guess when you were working with John in those early days, kind of tell me about where he was at mentally with a lot of the stuff he was doing. Cause again, that was 20 years ago. He's coming off this wave of momentum with, you know, the seminal men's ministry work of all time, which is wild at heart, you know, kind of what was that like? Because some people that have watched John for a long time are like, Oh, he's kind of chilled out or he's, he's getting more poetic in his latter years. And it's like, I feel like he's been the same guy the whole time. Yeah. I don't, I don't see a huge difference in John then versus now, honestly. Uh, I, I think he's, he's gotten, um, He's gotten more challenging in his theology in in recent years. I think he was kind of uh, he he was hitting a note back then that was kind of an everyman kind of note, and I think anyone that that would listen or read to it could resonate. And mm. uh, and I I think he's as he's matured, he and he's he's written a lot more. He's he's kind of been honing more into different parts of his theology as he's gone along, and uh, so you know that's. That's great. I mean, it's it's. Uh, I think he's kind of developed his tribe a little bit more along the way. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the first time I worked with him, it was interesting because it was the first time he'd done something with his wife uh, in a, mm-hmm. in a book. That was because we were working on uh, captivating at that point, and uh, I think everything he'd done, you know, before that had all been very very much you know men's focus. And then all of a sudden, here's one that's got a lot more to do with couples, uh, and, and it was fun to work with him alongside of her. Well, there's an important point in there as well, Gabe, to where it's like, okay, if you're in the public eye for any length of time, and I mean, I started this podcast in 2017, and that's not nearly as long as, you know, John Eldridge has been on the publishing scene. You're going to go back and look at things that you've written or that you've said and be like, ah, like you may just disagree with them, or you may be like, what a stupid way to say that. Like you would say it so much better now, but like, it's always good to kind of give people an idea of like, okay, you can evolve on issues. You can kind of develop and you can also own some of the things that you used to say that was like, yeah, that was just abjectly false or, Hey, I just, I disagree with what that looks like now. So, you know, we went, you know, we went and dove right into some of the stuff you did in the publishing world, but let's kind of go back to the early 2000s. So you're with Thomas Nelson, you know, that was eventually acquired by uh, Harper Collins, but you've been in this, this creative, film publishing space for a very, very long time. Most people listening to this don't work in that type of an industry. So I guess what drew you to that industry? And I guess what's kept you there? Because that's the other thing is most people nowadays have 15 different jobs and five different entire fields. And you've kind of stuck with this one. It's always evolved. And the minute I get bored with it, something changes about it, which has been great. Uh, 
But yeah, I, I think I've always been drawn to it. Um, I, I got into video work in high school. It was something that I kind of did on the side. I, I, I grew up in this church that had a youth pastor who was kind of a frustrated director and producer. And he, uh, he talked the church into investing in a studio and a bunch of gear. And so some of us that were kind of drawn to it got to spend a lot of time down there after school at nights working on video projects. And so I, mm. I, I got a, a kind of deep baritone voice early on. And so he was like, we need you for some voiceover stuff. So I started going into the studio and recording voiceover when I was like 15, 16, and, uh, and then learned a little bit more about producing and got into it. And so that was, I never intended on doing it for a career. I actually, uh, I, I went to school thinking I was going to teach and uh, that just didn't, that didn't happen. I ended up uh, my first job out of grad school. I got sucked into a video production firm here in Nashville and that kind of started the whole thing. So I, I did that for years and then uh, uh, got into the, to the publishing world through the same thing and then did video within the publishing world. And, uh, and then about uh, 2008, I started doing audiobooks uh, for Thomas Nelson along with some of the video. And then over time that's grown to now audio is pretty much my main thing. I don't really uh, do video so much anymore. I've got a team that, that works on it, but uh, it's uh, audio has kind of become the, the, the next great frontier. Okay. So let's talk a little bit, but I do want to talk about kind of this audiobook revolution as it were, but I do want to talk about just the evolution of the publishing industry from the early 2000s to now. So let's just look at this last couple of decades because everyone talks about news. It's like, okay, you used to go to the newsstand on the corner to buy USA Today or New York Times or Wall Street Journal or something like that. And now you can get that online or you can just get the free stuff on Twitter or whatever. And I know publishing has had to really adjust how they've basically presented their product to the market because especially now people used to get their, you know, entertainment from opening up a book and reading it. And now we have 15 different streaming services on our Roku and we can just click on one and we can watch seven seasons of some show. And, and, and that's our entertainment now. And like, it seems so slow and old school to just sit down and open up a book. So talk to me a little bit about what you've seen. Cause that's what I've seen from the outside kind of being a, a youngin in this whole deal. But what have you seen from your end? Yeah, it's, uh, I'm a real skeptic about a lot of these kind of things. And I, I was, uh, I remember sitting in a meeting in about 1999, my first uh, publishing job and uh, listening to a guy talking about eBooks and, mm -hmm. uh, yeah, he was kind of this doom and gloom. Oh, the eBooks is going to, you know, this is going to be the new thing. We're going to throw all of our print away. And, and this is, you know, and, and I'm sitting there as a, you know, as an early twenties guy listening to that and thinking, this is ludicrous. There's absolutely no way. And, uh, and that, you know, that's ended up being true to some extent. I mean, ebooks have been a thing, but it's, it's, it kind of hit a plateau and never really grew above that. Mm -hmm. uh, but I, I take that kind of attitude really towards any, anything where they say, oh, well, this is the future of publishing and this is where it's all going. I, I don't think it moves quite that fast. Uh, the, uh, um, you know, when people have talked about, well, it's all going to go green or we're going to be buying books by the chapter. Yeah, well, some of that's going to happen. Uh, but I haven't seen that really happening, really taking off yet. People think podcasts are going to replace uh, audiobooks. I don't think that's the case either. I, you know, I, I think it's a one one feeds off the other. I think they're they're two stripes of the same media. I think that at the end of the day, it's about content. If if we can create good content and we can bring voices into the market that people don't necessarily hear otherwise, or maybe not as many people hear otherwise, that's the whole relevance of publishing. And how it gets to you is kind of irrelevant. You know, I think right now I'm excited that digital audio is having this moment because I, I like the media. I like working in that medium. Mm -hmm. But, you know, that may not be the thing for terribly long either. I think the indicators are it's going to be around for a while. But at the other hand, you know, people still buy print books. People are going to mm -hmm. still buy print books. That there's a I'll be honest, uh, you know, if I go for something I want to consume at home, I'm typically picking up a printed book which is weird because I work in digital audio, but there's, there's this artifact quality of that book in your hand that is still relevant and still a personal thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, and if I drop it in the pool, it doesn't cost as much as if I drop my iPhone. So Right. Well, so that's the funny thing, because I've talked about on my show a lot, and we'll get into kind of men and why they don't read here in a second. But I basically exclusively read from my iPad. 
And the reason is the reason is now because you know I'll get these advanced copies that are in PDF version from the publishers, and so I I only put them on my iPad, and I can take my notes, and it's all really really well and good, and I can read in the dark without having to turn a light on and, and all that kind of stuff. And even before that, I would just read eBooks and things like that. But for me, it, it was the convenience of okay, I'm you know somewhere running an errand, and I've got 15 minutes to kill. Well, I can't be like oh dad gone it. I left my you know book on the nightstand. It's like, no, I've got my phone and I can just pull it out and I can read a chapter or two while I'm sitting there waiting. And so it was the convenience of it. But man, there are so many people that they want the tactical, not tactical, I guess I would be tactile, like feeling mm -hmm. the book in their hand. They want to feel the pages. My wife, I don't know what you would call this. She's like a paper file. Like she loves different types of paper and the weights and, and the texture and all that. Like we can't just buy Christmas cards. We have to buy Christmas cards with this weight of paper, with this type of finish and blah, blah, and all that. But that really does go into the publishing side. I know people that are nerds about, what is it, typesetting? Like, you know, the, the, the gaps and like, you know, cause the type set on this book and that book, there'll be the same amount of pages, but there's way more, more words in one versus the other. That's where I've kind of feel like that we're all, we are with this whole thing is like, okay, if you like the convenience of the E thing and having all your books in one place, great. You've got that. But if you want to have tomes and tomes all around you and you want to be surrounded by books, you can do that as well. Now, no one's going to want to help you when you move, right? Because they're going to be looking at all those boxes of books and be like, no, nah, screw you. You can do that on your own. But now let's go ahead and get into talking about men. So Gabe, every time I talk to a publisher, uh, whether it's either of the two that we've named here on this podcast or all the other ones, which will remain nameless because they're not part of this conversation, they tell us the same thing. Men do not read books. Like they don't buy hard copy books and read them. They certainly don't read them if they're Christian men. And so that's why a John Eldridge type, he is the anomaly of anomalies to sell over a million copies of Wild at Heart. Doesn't even make sense. I've talked to guys, you know, offline that are kind of in this space. I'm like, why don't you write a book specifically for men? And they're like, dude, I would love to. My publisher would never go for it. They would never put marketing dollars behind a book that is targeted at men or specifically at Christian men because it just won't sell any copies. What's your read of that? Because obviously you're in the audiobook space and I know a ton of men do audiobooks because when they're on the work site or when they're on the road, that's a way that they can like get a lot of content in. That's why men listen to so many podcasts. That's why men, you know, consume so many audiobooks. But again, that's just what I've seen on my side. I don't do this professionally. What have you seen? What's your read on it? Yeah, I, I think there's a, there's an interesting, uh, you know, kind of conundrum about this because we, we're still publishing more men than women. I mean, if you, if you look at our front list catalog, it's going to skew more male. And yet we're very cognizant of the fact that the majority of the consumers are female. Yeah. And, and that way, as long as I've been in this business, that's the stat I've heard every year I've been in it, you know? And a lot of times you get, you talk about, uh, you know, talk about John's books. There's plenty of evidence that a lot of those books were bought by women for men. Right. You know? and, right. Uh, and we know for sure that's a, that's a big like Bible Publishing is a big part of, of what Harper is about. Bibles are almost exclusively bought by women and, and Bibles are predominantly bought as gifts for somebody else. Uh, you know, and there's still an awful lot of that that happens every year. It's a, it's a huge part of, of our publishing you know, work that we do. But uh, yeah, it's it's funny. I, I, I think that and this is just anecdotal, but I, I can tell you among among my male friends, I feel like we buy occasional books. We're mm -hmm. given a lot more books and we, we probably go after a lot more content, you know, ourselves that is not something we have to, you know, be given or that we have to go buy ourselves. I, I think a lot of us are going online for content or listening to podcasts or listening to radio or listening to satellite. And we're going after our content that way instead of necessarily picking up a book unless someone hands it to us. Yeah. I would say as well with that is, Again, men connect shoulder to shoulder. Women connect eye to eye. That That's kind of typical. And so you can also be in yourself when you're in a book. Like you can kind of look at, at yourself and you can put yourself into the story. Whereas men, if they're going to do that, it's probably going to be in a, in a movie, like an action movie. They're going to see themselves in First Blood. They're going to see themselves in The Incredible Hulk or whatever movie that they're watching. And you, maybe personality-wise or wiring-wise, you don't see that as much with women. But I guess what I, what I would ask, and I know you've asked yourself this question. I know you've been part of meetings that this question has been asked. But how can we get more men into actually reading books because I heard a great quote from a friend of mine years ago. It's like, there's two types of people in this world. There are p guys that read and then there are morons. And like, that's just kind of where it is. Like I talked to these men who they haven't read a single book since high school, 
right? They, they didn't read any of their books in college. They haven't picked up a single book and they always blame, oh, you know, I'm working or oh, I've got family. But for the most part, it's like, they'd rather play video games. They'd rather, you know, binge Netflix. They'd rather look at porn and masturbate. They'd rather do something else and then to feed their brains. And I'm talking not just with fiction, just with, you know, stories that are just for entertainment. I'm talking about nonfiction, like real world, you know, anything, theology or history or any type of entertainment in the nonfiction world. What can we do to convince more guys? Hey, this is certainly worth your time. Yeah. You're, you're, you're hitting something that's near and dear to me there. Um, I think it starts young. I, th I think it probably starts in high school. Uh, and, and, you know, I started getting into this idea of wanting to teach because I wanted to teach, I wanted to teach literature. Uh, and I didn't kind of get that idea until I went to college. And the reason was in college for the first time I was reading things I wanted to read. You know, you, you go through all this curriculum, middle school and high school, where they're telling you, these are the books you're supposed to be looking at. And I, you know, Grant, there's stuff that's kind of in our literary canon that everybody should have some exposure to. And, and if you don't, then you're, you're kind of ignorant. But on the other hand, you know, if you really want to, to capture, you know, a boy's attention, he needs to be reading something that actually hits him where his interest lies. And if he gets into the habit of actually reading something because he likes that subject matter, he'll keep doing it. I've got uh, my 18 year old is not a reader. And mm -hmm. I, I, part of that is that it's just his way he's wired to some extent. But part of it too, is I, you know, I looked at the stuff he was reading growing up and, you know, it was the standard assignments that you would expect in middle school and high school. And, uh, you know, shame on me. I didn't do a great job of putting a bunch of books in front of him when he was younger uh, because he was more focused on other things. And I was trying to encourage that his, his younger brother, who's about to be 10 loves to read. And I think part of it is because I'll give my wife credit. She was a lot more uh, instrumental in making sure there were books around that were things in his interest areas. And so he started picking those up. And, you know, after a couple of years of that, it became a habit with him. Uh, and he'll, you know, he'll still gripe if we try to make him read, <laughs> you know, yeah. it's, you know, it, you, you can't say, all right, you've got 30 minutes of reading time now. But if you have it around him and it's something that the cover screams, this is something that you like already, he'll pick it up and want to go through it. And, uh, and I don't think schools do that. I, I think there's, there's no freedom in what, uh, what kids are told they have to read right now. One thing that I think is interesting as well, and that's that's a great word for for dads, especially to make sure that there are those books around. But part of it is modeling as well. Like if you're, you know, if you're not good with your money, if you're out of shape, if you don't read and you want your kids to do all those different things, your excuse can't be, you know, do as I say, not as I do. Like eventually that's going to kind of run its course. So dads, they need to see you reading. They need to see you digging into things. You need to read the books with them. Right. And y'all can talk about it together. You, you make yourself so available to your son in a very interesting way, whenever you can lay bare your opinions about a classic novel or about something that's specific to, to their interests. But I would say as well, with a lot of dads out there, with a lot of people that don't like to read, I think they feel like the juice isn't worth the squeeze. That's why we put a, a book list on our website. It's the hundred books, every modern Christian man should read list. Okay. And if you just throw a dart at this list and hit one. I guarantee you that book is going to be valuable to you. That's why we've curated this list. We take books off. We put books on like it's, it's kind of a rotating list of sorts, but it's like, guys, there are resources out there for you, but it's weird how people catch the bug though. Isn't it? Because Gabe, I didn't read any of the books in high school. Like I, I cheated on a lot of my tests, like, you know, cause I didn't want to read the book or I would just read the spark notes and hope to God the tests the next day had something to do with the summaries that I read because I just didn't want to read the actual physical book. But here I am now this year, I'm going to read well over 50 books. Like that is not great for me in my brain. Cause I read so slowly. It takes a ton of time for me to do that, but I've gotten so much value out of reading these, these different authors and their different opinions. So do you feel like for a lot of guys, they just, they just, I don't know, they'd rather tinker with something in the garage or go to the shooting range or something like that because they just don't think it's going to be worth it for them. Yeah, I, I think it, it requires some effort that they're not willing to put into it. I, mm -hmm. I think it's, you know, if you're, uh, I mean, I, look, I'm an old car guy. I got two old cars out in the garage. I love working on old houses. If you gave me a choice between grabbing some tools and working on that or sitting down with a book, I'm going to grab the tools, you know, because that's something I know gives me a release and I enjoy it. And I feel like I'm actually accomplishing something with my hands. If you can get that same feeling that you accomplished something, I think that's one of the things. I think guys want to accomplish something. We want to feel like, you know, not that we've necessarily fixed something, but that we actually can step back from something we put time in and go, oh, yeah, that that came together or, or I did that or whatever. 
And I, I think you, if you're reading the kind of thing that at the end of reading it, you have that same sense of satisfaction that I actually accomplished something by doing this, that I, mm-hmm. I'm better, I understand something, there's some questions I've got answered now, or it's piqued my interest in something else. You know, that, that's where you win and that's where you, you're willing to make the effort to do it. Uh, so I, don't know. I, I think you've got to be really careful with the material that you uh, decide to read. The, I, I've got a stack of books on my nightstand that were recommendations from people. Mm. There's probably 30 books there. I don't think I'm going to get through many of them because yeah. it's like someone says, oh, you need to read this, hands me a book. I'm in the publishing business. People give me books all the time. <laughs> and, and I'm not going to be rude and say, no, I'll never take a look at that. No, I'll take it. And it'll go on my nightstand. And, uh, you know, periodically my wife's like, you need to clean some of that crap off the nightstand right. because I will read the first chapter and go, yeah, I just, I can't get into this. It's not, you know, the, the subject matter is not really intriguing to me. And so it sits there. Uh, and I think if I were to invest the time, I've tried a few times. So like friends have written books and, and I, I hope none of them, you know, get me on this because there's a few that they're like, oh man, I want you to read my book. And I've tried and I'll get three or four chapters in it. But like, if I invest the next couple of nights in reading this, I'm not going to be the better for it. It's just kind of going to piss me off. And, you know, and I don't want to be dishonest to him and go, Oh man, your book was awesome. You know? Well, see, you're a better man than me because I have this horrible, well, no, it's not a horrible you know trade. It's actually really good in a lot of ways. I have to finish things. Mm-hmm. So even if the movie's terrible, I have to finish it. Even if the book is awful, like probably the worst book I've ever read. It was a 600 page novel. I think it was called, I think it was called the the, li- the librarian or the, I can't remember. It was this dude that was trying to find Vlad Dracula, like in modern day or something like that. Oh, the historian or it was something like that. It was atrocious and it was never good. It never got good. Like spoiler alert, when they found Vlad Dracula in real life, the guy pulled out a gun and shot him. Right. And that was it. That was the whole thing. We spent 598 pages trying to find this guy and then he just finds him and kills him. But I have to finish it. So even if it's a turd sandwich, I have to eat the whole thing. And so like, that's the thing that for a lot of guys, if you're going to, I guess, get a book for somebody or give them a recommendation, make sure it's pertinent to them and not to you because don't recommend the book to them because you liked it so much. And your friend who's nothing like you, like why, why in the world would you recommend that book to him? Like give it, give him something that would kind of be in his wheelhouse. That'll be kind of in or near him. Now, before we get into this, this latest project that I really want to talk about, um, I want to just talk about audiobooks in general, because I was reading in your bio and I read in the bio b- before this interview started 900 or so audiobooks are what you and your team produce every year. Well, first of all, how, like how in the world does that happen? Because like, you know, it takes a long time to read these things and to like, even if you got a professional actor, you know, they got to keep their pipes good to go to read through this entire book, you know, tens of thousands of words. But I don't know, that seems like so many books and, and you're just one guy on one team at one publishing house. Are audiobooks really that big? Are they really becoming like this overwhelming hegemon in this space? They, they absolutely are. And uh, that number, uh, three years ago would have been about 400 titles. That's the okay. kind of growth that we're seeing. And and the reason is half of my job right now is going back and recording stuff that we published 10, 15, 20 years ago, that at the time it wasn't worth putting it out in audio. Because uh, if you did, it was going to be on cassette or it was going to be on you know a stack of 20 CDs and it was going to be so expensive that I was going to buy it and it was going to end up being remaindered and going to landfill. And, uh, and now because of, of the onset of digital, uh, audio, the game has changed. And now really anything that you've got that you can record is worth recording. So, you know, of that 900 this year, about 450 to 500 of those are going to be things that are probably 10 years old up to 25 and even 30 years old. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's a huge volume. <laughs> it's, it's a lot of, a lot of stuff to go through. Well, I mean, I feel like that's exciting. And I feel like and this may be a good thing for the men's space as well is like they've, I think men feel like if they listen to a book that it's cheating, which to a degree it is, because if you say, Hey, I read that book, it's like, nah, you didn't, you just listened to it, but it doesn't really matter how you consume it because of those 50 or so books that I've read so far this year, I think three or four were audiobooks. but I was on long road trips and as opposed to just, you know, going through my normal podcast, it's like, hey, I'm going to consume that. Like I'm in the middle of like a 23 hour long book on Theodore Roosevelt and it's one of three books. And like, I'm loving it because they're really digging into the detail on Theodore Roosevelt. And it's like, I'm never going to have that amount of time just working around the house or mowing the lawn or something like that. But on a long drive, like that's a great way to get in this content, to kind of feed our brain and to be entertained. 
Yeah. But we've we've done all this setup to really get to something that just came across uh, here recently. And it's this it's country gospel. So if you guys are looking at this on the screen, it looks like it's a bunch of CDs in a, in a uh, package. And that's exactly what it is. But the, the cool thing uh, about this is this is the country music stars of yesteryear and today reading the New Testament of the Bible. And so I'll actually, I actually read through the names in the intro, so I won't uh, go into that, but I will ask some specifics about some of these folks. But the cool thing about this game is one of the greatest gifts I've ever gotten in my entire life. I actually got this from my in-laws before they were my in-laws. This is just when my wife and I were dating at the time. They got me a copy of Johnny Cash reading the New Testament. And I, you know, I'm still kind of obsessed with Johnny Cash, but especially at that time, I was very obsessed with it. You know, this is where before streaming and YouTube and, and all that. And so, you know, it was the box set and it was expensive. And I was like, oh my gosh, I don't know if I'll ever be able to afford this thing. And then they got it for me for Christmas. And oh man, like that was like the coolest thing. And even to this day, when I, when I study the Bible, if I'm passively studying the Bible, I'll hit that and I'll just turn that on and I'll listen to him reading through his, you know, his voice. And it's just absolutely incredible. So with this one, You've got a bunch of different artists that are reading the New Testament, and uh, these are people that I'm assuming are believing the words that they're reading, which which is a good thing because you don't always get that from a voice actor that is reading a particular book, especially if it's more of a Zondervan type of book. But for you, I guess, how did this type of project even come come along? You know, how did you guys figure out, hey, this is probably going to be a good thing? And obviously, you're there in Nashville, so it seemed like you were the perfect guy to maybe pull this off. The, this was uh, so I, I just finished 20 years working at, uh, at Harper slash Nelson before that. And in 20 years, I've never uh, I've never actually pitched a project ah. uh, to a publisher before. I'm, I'm on the service side of the business. I, I record things for people or film things for people or that's what my team does. Uh, but we don't really get into the content creation part of it so much. But this was something that had been on my mind for years. Uh, like you, I, I love that Johnny Cash recording. Uh, mm-hmm. I, that's uh, I know people in the Nashville studio community that worked on that project back in oh, the wow. Johnny. There's there's some great stories that come out of those sessions. I mean, he was he was so driven. Uh, I've talked to one of the engineers that worked on that, and he, he said Johnny would come in and he would read all night. It was which is unheard of. People don't do that. I mean, mm-hmm. usually when I'm working with an author. If I get four or five hours of reading out of them, that's a good day. That's a great day. Right. And frankly, after four hours, they start to sound like somebody else anyway. You kind of need them to stop because, you know, yeah. they start getting all dragged out. Johnny was doing seven, eight, nine, ten hour sessions on this thing because he was so driven. He, is, he had to do it. Uh, and I, I love that recording. And it, it almost went out of print. Uh, and, and thankfully, uh, it wow. didn't. But the uh, back in uh, back in 2004, um, I, uh, I had a chance to, to talk to the Bible publisher about, hey, let's not let that thing go out of print. Let's let's digitize it and try to get it out in digital audio, which was very new at that point. Mm. And uh, and that worked. And so that's one of those things has been kind of a perennial seller in our back catalog. And it's always struck me that, you know, we've we've got so many great contacts in country music. Why don't we do this again? And mm. uh and so I, uh, I approached the Zonervan publisher, uh, Melinda Balma, a friend of mine, and, and I said, you know, if I'm just thinking spitballing here, I can come up with 15 names of country artists that we've worked with in different contexts, whether it's promotion or we've done their book or whatever. I bet if we went back and talked to them about reading an audio Bible, some of them would go for it. And she loved the idea and said, OK, go pursue it. See who you can get. And so uh, that's kind of how it started. It was it was really who we already worked with, who did we have a relationship with? And from there it snowballed from there. It was, you know, I, I would be in the, in the studio with one of the artists and we'd record and at the end of it, we'd be sitting around talking about things and I'd say, Hey, who else do you know that should be on this? Mm-hmm. And they, oh, well, we need you to get this, this, this. And then they'd, they'd give me their phone numbers. And it was, it was funny. I mean, I, I didn't ever have to go through an agent really for mm-hmm. anybody. I didn't have to go advertise. We were looking for talent. It was, it was all word of mouth. And this is this is a town where people know people. Uh, you know, it's all very networked. And, and though I've never been in the music side of the business, I've, I've definitely rubbed shoulders with people who are. And so it, it doesn't take that many phone calls to get in front of the right people and get the right phone numbers. And, and then it's just a matter of where they interested. But but the goal was we wanted people who actually did believe this, uh, like you're saying, there's there are plenty of people in the country music world who are not people of faith who would have 
love to have been on this just for the publicity. And we didn't want those. We wanted folks that actually that actually walked it. And uh, and I'm I'm pretty proud of who we ended up getting on here. I I, I would stand behind any of them and, and getting to be with each of them personally and kind of hear their testimony and their story as we were working, mm-hmm. it, it kind of helped validate all that. Before we get too much further into that, you mentioned some Johnny Cash stories, okay? And you may have told told them all, but are there any other Johnny Cash stories? Because again, this is just for me. I don't even care if my audience cares. Like, this is for me. I'm being completely selfish right now. Are there any other interesting Johnny Cash stories, either coming from working on that New Testament uh, project or anything else? Because I'm all ears for anything Cash. All right, I'll tell you my favorite Johnny Cash story. Let's go, all right. Uh, so, uh, I've, and I've, I've heard several over the years, but this one I got kind of directly from, from a good source. I worked on... Uh, John Carter Cash uh, worked on his book that he wrote about his mom right after she passed. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so he had a, a friend of the family, a guy named Mark Stilper, who was a kind of a country music historian who worked with them on preparing that manuscript and kind of researching the history. And I got to work with Mark quite a bit during that project. And one day we were driving out to John Carter's house. And John Carter lives right next to what used to be Johnny Cash's house, the the, mm. the one that burned you know several years ago, but it's the one that you see in Walk the Line. It's the one everybody knows mm. about. So John Carter's right next door to it, and we're driving out there, and uh, and we're about to start talking to John Carter about filming him for uh, a promotion on on his mom's uh, story, and uh, and we pass by this pier. If you ever seen Walk the Line, there's a there's a scene where he kind of crashes a tractor off the end right. of the pier right next. To, okay. Yep. Well, that pier is still there. And uh, and so Mark Stilper starts telling me a story about that pier. He said, one time I was here at Johnny's house. And he said, people knew that Johnny had an appreciation for, you know, for handcrafted, finely made things. And they thought he was probably a gun enthusiast. And so fans would send Johnny guns. And it happened all the time. Mm. And, uh, and he said, people didn't realize Johnny actually really didn't like guns. He, he was, he could appreciate the craftsmanship, but he didn't, he didn't like the idea of, of guns. And so, uh, he said he was there and someone had sent Johnny this beautiful, he thought it was like a, you know, pearl handled Colt. It's this gorgeous, mm-hmm. gorgeous handgun. And Johnny took it out and looked at it and admired it. And he said, oh, that's, that's beautiful. And then he walked down to the pier and threw it off the end of the pier and said, you're never going to hurt anybody. Oh, no. <laughs> and, and according to, to, to Mark, he said, you know, if a diver went off the end of that pier, he'd probably find 20 or 30 pieces just like that at the bottom of the lake. Because that's what he'd do. He'd look at me, toss them in the river. Well, uh, after this, you can go ahead and give me the location and I will get my scuba certification and be like, hey, these are technically all Johnny Cash's guns and I'll have them in my own personal collection. Um, So you talked about uh, all the people that you're able to get for this country gospel thing. But I kind of want to know who are the people that you wanted that you didn't get? Because there was one name. There was really only one name that came to the top of my mind that would have been an interesting person to hear. And that was Vince Gill. And maybe that's because it's the Oki and me or something like that. It would have been interesting to hear him. And, you know, you're not going to see, you know, a lot of people in this lineup that are huge right now. These are maybe people like back in the day, like I think one of my mom's favorite people ever was Neil McCoy. But of course, you know, Neil McCoy is not making platinum records today, those types of things. But is there anybody that you didn't get that maybe you were close to or that you really wanted, but maybe wasn't, you know, interested in the project or anything like that? Oh, uh, the first two on my list were Charlie Daniels and Ricky Skaggs. Okay. And, and you got them. Uh, got both those guys. So I kind of felt like I, you know, I checked those off the list. Um, really wanted to get Dolly Parton. That, that mm. was nice. Um, and, uh, and talk to her people about it a little bit. And it just, it just wasn't uh, something she had the time for at the, at the, at that particular point. We, uh, when we ended up recording all this was a little weird and it worked out for some people, but not for others. I got the green light to do this uh, project probably December, January, right around end of 2019, beginning of 2020. So we're going to start production about April, May of 2020. And of course the world changed in March of 2020. And uh, so suddenly Nashville studios are closed for one thing and you couldn't actually book a session. Uh, there are a few people that decide to open back up uh, kind of into the spring, beginning of the summer. We started getting some sessions. But even then, it's it was really weird. You know, it'd, it'd be like I'm in the control room and the engineer's 20 feet over here and everybody's masked up and the artist is over here in the sound booth. And the three of us will never be in the same space. 
You know, mm-hmm. it just, it, it was surreal how you had to, to go about what normally is a very kind of personal uh, kind of process. It helped in some cases because no one was on the road either. So there were people like Hillary Scott. I don't think Hillary Scott would have ever had time to do this were it not right. for the pandemic. But because all of a sudden she has no show dates, she was able to come in and give us a few days behind a microphone. Uh, but then there's others that, that be like, uh, I really wanted Bill Anderson. Uh, Bill mm-hmm. Anderson, oldest surviving member of the Opry. He's kind of like one of, one of that last of that generation. And yeah. initially he agreed to, to be on the project. And, uh, but, you know, as that was when we all thought the pandemic might last a few months and, and then we'd get back to our normal lives. And so we were kind of banking on that. But as it drug on, you know, about a year into it, he finally just said, I just don't feel comfortable. I, I, I don't feel comfortable. He was just he really was just kind of pulled up in his house, which I get. And, and we'd, mm-hmm. we'd already lost a number of people in country music at that point. Uh, so. So, yeah, there was a disappointment. I didn't get him, but uh, it actually worked out. Because he uh, he was going to read the Book of Revelation and kind of wrap up the whole thing, mm-hmm. and uh, I'd already gotten T.G. Shepherd on board, but he was going to read something else earlier in the New Testament. And gosh, I had no idea how amazing T.G. Shepherd is as a narrator. The guy just he has pipes that don't quit, and uh, just a, a total joy to work with. And so when uh, when Bill bowed out of it. Um, I called TG the next day and said, Hey, would you like to come back in and read Revelation? He said, Oh, yeah, I'd love to. And it, it worked out great. I mean, there's, it, we still got someone who kind of, uh, you know, represents an earlier generation of, of the music, but just knocked it out of the park with, with the delivery of it. Yeah, that's awesome. I, I have a question about a couple of people that you brought up, but the first one is Charlie Daniels. So obviously he's uh, one of the larger profile people, obviously, of, of this entire project. Um, but he's not with us anymore. You know, he passed away uh, a while ago, but I guess my question is, is, is it haunting to hear Charlie read? Cause he reads the book of Mark. Mm-hmm. Is it haunting to hear him read that? Because I, I will say this, I became a Johnny Cash fan during the American recordings that he did, you know, later on in his life. And then I went backwards, you know, to the sun recordings and kind of worked my way through. And I, I used to work for the guy that's the, um, I don't know if I can name this band, but anyway, he's, he's a, He's been a longtime manager for this very, very big band out out of Oklahoma City, and he owns like terabytes and terabytes and terabytes of music, and most of it's like in CD form, actually, and one day he just walks by my desk, and he puts a stack, and these are not like with the actual cases, we're talking about the skinny cases, a stack of Johnny Cash albums on my desk and says, have fun, and so I got to like really develop and read through his biographies and all that, and so I guess for whatever reason, whenever I listen to Johnny Cash reading the the New Testament, it's not haunting, it's because I'm still so giddy about Johnny Cash, because I'm just a fan of his life and how crazy it was, and how he became an ordained minister at one point, he actually wrote a novel about the apostle Paul, you know, called man in white, which is fantastic, which I have a copy of uh, downstairs in my library, but I like audio for that one. Listen to it. What's that? <laughs> I produced the audio book of that. You should listen to it. It's great. It's fantastic. We're going to go back to that. We're going to go back to that immediately. We're going to keep, we're going to keep finding stuff to go into. So let's go back to Charlie Daniels though. Like for whatever reason, it feels funny hearing him read that because there's almost this reverence because he's just not here anymore. And a guy, and again, that's a guy that kind of had a rough life in a lot of ways. And then, you know, kind of, you found Christ and all that. So it doesn't feel that way for you since you actually worked with him on the project. Yeah. It, it makes me smile to listen to it. Uh, Charlie was the the first person that I told the publisher we'd be able to get. <laughs> because okay. We'd done his book. Uh, I'd worked with him on some other promotional stuff. I'd worked with him a couple of times at that point just loved working with the man. He just, he, uh, he was funny and he was, he was really bright. And, uh, the, uh, the first time that I met him, he was, uh, it was actually his birthday and it was, I think he was 78 or 79, somewhere in that range. And his, uh, his staff had made him a birthday cake. And so we were out uh, filming at his, at his office and, uh, and on a break, he starts passing around slices of his birthday cake. And I, I was, trying to lose some weight, failing at it, but I was trying. And he comes over to me and hands me this big piece of cake. And I said, ah, uh, Charlie, I'm sorry. I just, I'm, I'm trying to, to watch it right now. I'm not going to do that. And he, he reared up and he said, boy, you don't want my cake. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I was like, yes, sir. I'll take two slices right now. Right. But, but he, you know, I, I'll, I'll never forget the first time I worked with him after he'd had his stroke and he had a massive stroke mm-hmm. and, when he shook your hand, you still thought this guy could put you on the floor. 
Yeah. As a, you know, 80 something year old. He's just, he's just strong as a bull, but, uh, but he was so much fun to work with and I, I knew he would do it. And so, um, so he was kind of like a, the instant checkbox. Yeah. We're going to get Charlie to read this. And then between, you know, having that conversation and then getting the green light on the project, he died. And, yeah. uh, and so, and I, you know, I, his, uh, his agent's a friend of mine and I had lunch with him, uh, shortly after that. And I said, man, let me tell you about this project I was going to call you about because Charlie would have eaten this up. And, uh, and I, he, he sat there and said, you know, he actually recorded his own audio Bible. Like, really? Wow. Yeah, yeah he did. He said, we've, we've got the whole thing in the can. It was never edited. Um, and he said, there's some problems with it, but, but he did it. And he said, is there any way we could make use of it? And, uh, so, so, well, you know, the problem is that we're, we're doing this in the new international version. And so that's, you know, the chances that he read the thing in the NIV or we said, no, he read it in the NIV. Wow. Really? Okay. All right. Well, then let's, let's figure out how to make this work. Well, the, the problem was that Johnny or Johnny, Charlie had, uh, had done this using his own personal Bible, uh, which was like a 1982 copy of the NIV. Okay. Well, the thing about the NIV is it's always being updated right. and you can only, you know, by use of your license with the, the company that actually owns the rights. So you can only record or print the most up-to-date version, which, uh, was pretty different than, than what Charlie had read. But uh, we spent months on this and decided that we were going to make it work. So we uh, we took Charlie's recording and then we we took his recording of his autobiography that we had done a few years before. And we started looking for all the sounds and the words that we needed. And so before it was all said and done, we had created the book of Mark with kind of this Frankenstein of those two recordings. Wow. It worked great. The, the amazing thing is you can't tell. You can't tell at all. You can't tell at all. Every verse in the Gospel of Mark on that recording has at least two edits. Some have as many as eight. You'll oh never hear it. Oh, my goodness. But, uh, but I, you know, I, that makes me smile to listen to it now because I think, I think he would have appreciated that. He would have loved the fact that we had that challenge. He was a, he was a tinkerer. He, he loved to work on stuff. Uh, I, I had the pleasure of just sitting with him and talking about gear for a couple hours one afternoon and, and just his knowledge of, of how it worked. And, you know, oh, yeah, I bought that amp 30 years ago in a pawn shop in Atlanta. Here's how it you know, is that kind of thing. And so I, I think the, the the notion of having to put all these recordings together to make the gospel more would have appealed to him. That how many people know that story? That is incredible. Like I had, I had no idea. You should print that somewhere on this thing. Like, you know, it's in there. It's uh, there's, uh, there are interviews at the end of each of the books. Oh, okay. Yeah. I didn't listen to those. And, uh, so, uh, Charlie, of course, wasn't able to give us an interview, but I got to interview David Corlew, who was kind of his right hand man for most of his career. And, uh, David kind of explains the whole story and, and we talked about how it all came about. So, yeah, we debated not including it in there because that, that was, it was kind of like, well, you know, do we really kind of want to spread the word that, that Johnny, that, that, I keep calling him Johnny. Yeah. That, we'll get that, to Johnny again in a second. Do we want to talk about the fact that Charlie didn't sit down and read this word for word as you're hearing it. And then we ultimately decided, no, the story's too good. And, oh and yeah. The fact that it actually worked and it actually sounds good. And it's still Charlie reading every bit of it. Yeah, that's that's cool and it's worth talking about. Hey, I'm super going to co-sign that. Like, I had no idea, and it was cool enough just hearing Charlie Daniels' voice doing this, but knowing the whole backstory that he kind of already did that, because as you were talking through the timeline of when this project was was put out there, I was like, even in my head before, I was like, I was going to ask you about Charlie Daniels anyway, but I'm like, wait a minute, like, when when would he have recorded this? Because, like, you know, anyway, so that, that that's all very, very interesting. But let's go back to this thing that you just kind of slid into a conversation with a big Johnny Cash fan. So you did the audio. So I guess to the, anyone in the audience, tell them what uh, Man in White was, because obviously everybody knows that Johnny Cash was the man in black. That was part of his thing, part of his persona. I've kind of taken on that a little bit. Every time I go speak, I wear all black partially because it's easy, partially because I sweat and people won't be able to see it, but partially because that's like the Johnny Cash style. Like it's just, you know, mm -hmm. black from head to toe, head to toe. And you don't have to think about it anymore. But again, yes, he became an ordained minister and he wrote this book, but kind of give us the backstory in the book and then kind of going into the audio version. He, uh, so it's a fictionalized account of the book of the story of the apostle Paul. Uh, and it was something that 
it was kind of a pet project of his for years. Uh, mm-hmm. it, it really took him a very long time to write it, and mainly because he rewrote the thing several times. Uh, he would uh, he'd write a draft of it, and he'd share it with a friend of his. And you know, of course, he knew people everywhere, and and he and he knew a lot of writers, and he lo- he knew a lot of people in ministry. And and every time he would share it with someone, he'd get feedback, and he'd go back and rewrite the thing again. Mm. And so it you know who knows how many actual iterations of it there were. Um, the, uh, we published the print version of it. Uh, I feel like it was before he passed. So it, it was probably late nineties, uh, that, that we published it, but it wasn't put out in audio. Mm. And, uh, that was something that, uh, we had the opportunity to do it. Uh, it's probably been, it's been seven or eight years ago now, but, uh, it was, it was years after he had passed that, uh, the decision was made, Hey, let's see if we can put this out in audio. And, uh, thankfully I was able to get, uh, Webb Wilder, who is, uh, another great in the country world and, uh, one of the best voices out there, uh, either, you know, speaking or singing. And, uh, he was, he was just thrilled to be asked to, to do it. And so he, he lent his pipes to that project, did a fantastic job. Well, I have so many more questions about that, but for the love of God, we're going to be here all day. So I'll, I'll, maybe I'll ask you later because we're becoming fast friends. So, so this is kind of an interesting question because obviously having Hillary Scott, you mentioned her earlier, she's part of the, the trio lady antebellum, but that's kind of my question is I know that they turned off a large portion of their fan base when they officially changed their name from Lady Antebellum to Lady A. Now, anyone who's been a Lady Antebellum fan, because I've told people before, that was kind of like with their first album, like my dad was listening to it at his house one day and I was like, this sounds pretty good and I hated country music at the time. And so that's always kind of been one of my like guilty pleasures was Lady Antebellum for whatever reason. And I know that their their fans just kind of called them Lady A and I think that was like their fan club was like the Lady A fan club or whatever because most people don't know how to spell antebellum they don't even know what antebellum actually is but you know you know with all the stuff that happened in 2020 and george floyd and the riots and everything everyone got really really sensitive they weren't the dixie chicks anymore they just became the chicks which is somehow not offensive so we'll see how long that lasts but then lady antebellum they officially changed their name to lady a and i remember thinking to myself what an unforced error like i don't think anybody is thinking that those three artists and the rest of the band are playing at kkk rallies and they've got a bunch of neo-nazis in the front row and skinheads in the back like i i thought it was an unforced error for them and and again that was probably the label making those decisions i doubt the band was sitting there like oh my gosh what do we need to do with our name that we picked from the beginning but did that strike you as odd when that happened because well to be honest the first time i saw her on here i immediately thought oh god why'd they rename their band that was like my first thought it was such it was just such a weird thing to me so i just want to get your read on it yeah uh I'll just, I'll shoot from the hip on it. I, it's not something I had a conversation with her about. Um, the, uh, I got to work with her for the first time on this project. And also her mother, Linda Davis, uh, was Linda was actually the first person I think we recorded for the project. And, uh, the, the thing that hit me about both of them, they're two of the kindest people I've ever met. Honestly, mm-hmm. just, there's, there's a warmth about them that is just, you know, it, it it's so authentic, uh, and, uh, and just very kind. They make you feel like you've known them for years within 10 minutes of, of talking to them. And there's a sensitivity there. I, I think there are, they are, um, these are people who are very in tune with their fans. Uh, they're very cognizant of the fact that people look to them and, you know, as role models, they're very serious about their faith, deeply serious about their faith. And they're very serious about their image. And so I, you know, in my mind, that all probably had to do with it. I don't know if it was a label decision or if it was a band decision, but when all that went down, you know, the, there's just so much scrutiny happening in country music in general. Uh, there's, there's always going to be a little bit of a tension between traditional and modern. They had just gotten into the Opry, which you don't get much more traditional than that. Uh, and I, you know, I, I think probably all that, all that the, the timing just kind of came together at a point where they felt like they they needed to to react to the times and and be a little more sensitive about something that probably didn't offend their fan base but may have offended people that weren't part of their fan base but they were part of the greater community i don't know i i can't speak on their behalf but i, I can tell you just from what i've seen of their character that wouldn't surprise me 
All right, well, we'll leave that one there. So when I looked at this initial list of artists that were going to be on here, obviously, you know, Hillary Scott, because of her profile and how big uh, Lady Antebellum is, I'm calling them Lady Antebellum. I don't care if I get canceled. Um, like, you know, I was like, that's a really cool get. You know, obviously, like I said, you know, Charlie Daniels, that's really neat. You know, for my mom's sake, Neil McCoy, that was such a cool thing. And Tracy Lawrence and some of those other ones. But there was one name that, stu- that st- stood out to me for several reasons, and that was Josh Turner. And so the first reason why it stood out to me is because, I mean, the dude's got the most silky bass voice. Like it's such an unbelievable voice when he sings. And then when he talks, it's just like that as well. But 10 years ago, this summer, actually, I worked for Major League Baseball, kind of it's a long story, but we would have artists come through all the time. And one of the artists that came through was Josh Turner. He came and did a tour. And so I'm kind of giving him this tour. And then he had some downtime and we had a pool table. And so he and I played pool and we had a nice back and forth game of pool. And we're just chatting the whole time. And there's some nice pictures of us having a good time. And, uh, you know, I, I guess you could ask him the next time you see him who won that game. You know, I, I don't want to brag or anything like that, but it was just such a fun time because most of the people we met were really, really down to earth. Like these were not people that were wanting to be weighted on hand and foot. Yeah. They had sold millions of records or yeah, they had done some incredible things on the baseball diamond, but they were just regular people at the end of the day. And I always remembered that about him. And so even, even in those days, I didn't give a crap about country music and I've kind of developed more of a taste for certain parts of country music later on. I'll never be like the Florida Georgia line guy or like the, you know, any of those types of kind of country for whatever reason, that just doesn't really agree with my palate. But Josh Turner, I think his first big, um, I got a uh, long black train and his first like major hit was like, it basically was like an exposition of the gospel mm-hmm. and like, this is being played on, on country radio and it's all over the place. So this guy's never seemingly been shy about his faith. And here he is working on this project. Obviously his voice is incredible. So talk to me about Josh Turner and how all that kind of came to be, because he seemed like a guy that would be downright giddy to do this. Cause he read first and second Peter first, second and third John and Jude. So what was it like working with him? Uh, Josh was great. Uh, I've, I've, had some interesting convergence with him over, over the years. Uh, my wife has known him actually since college, they went to church together, uh, a long time ago. And, and so she knew him before he was big. And then we, uh, we published his, his first book several years ago, uh, which was, uh, which was a great book and, uh, and did well. And I actually got to work on the audio book, uh, for that one. Uh, and so, you know, he was a very early target that, that we had as far as somebody we wanted on the cast. And uh, the kind of the, the guy that I really spitballed all the ideas off of initially was Rory Fee. Rory, Rory's become mm-hmm. a friend of mine over the years. We've published him several times, just tremendous human being. And, uh, and talking to Rory about who should we be looking at, the first person that came to mind for him was Josh and their buddies. Yeah. And so we kind of hit Josh from all these different sides, all these people <laughs> that knew him and it wasn't a very hard thing to convince him to be part of it. Uh, it was harder to, to get access, you know, to, to have, to get time with him. Um, mm. But, you know, once he got into it, he's, Josh is one of these guys that is just a consummate professional. It's, you know, there, there are people who wanted to come in and sit around and shoot the breeze for an hour. And then we'd record some, and then we'd, you know, they, they'd want to talk about stories. And you know, a lot of them hadn't gotten to be around people much, you know, for months mm-hmm. the pandemic. So they were, they were enjoying being back in the studio and getting to, to chat with folks. And then there were some that just that came in and was like, all right, game face on, we're going to get this done. And Josh is one of those. I mean, he just, he sat down ready to go. And I don't think he was in the chair five minutes before we were rolling. And, and he would just absolutely motor through it and did a fantastic job. He was one of the most error-free readers uh, that we had. Uh, there were very few things I had to make him do a retake on. Uh, but yeah, he's uh it's funny as, as commanding of a voice as he's got, uh, when he's reading, he's actually kind of quiet. Mm. Uh, he still has that just amazing baritone, but, uh, but it's, it's, you know, you have to turn the level up on him a little bit because he's, he's actually a little soft spoken. Uh, and, uh, but man, just talk about someone who takes it seriously. I mean, it, this is, he, uh, he wanted to read those books. They, they actually, he got onto the project early enough that he had a choice of which books he could read. And so that was what he wanted. And they, you know, it was very evident they spoke to him and it was something that he had a personal tie to. Uh, yeah, no, Josh was, Josh was a pleasure. I, I hope we get to work on uh, something else with him. 
That's fantastic. So you, you mentioned errors right there. And so I, I know a lot of people that are in the publishing space now, and obviously you're, you're very prominent in the audiobook space. And it's like, you know, I, I kind of make fun of myself sometimes because when I read long passages of books or of articles on this, on the show, I'll mess up and I just keep going. Like, I'm not going to stop and edit and do all those different things, but I've always thought about, cause I get hit up about, you know, writing books and doing all those different things. And so that's probably a part of the future and like reading the audiobook myself and my two main concerns. Number one, I have kind of a weak voice. And so if I talk like this for very long, like this excited ginger anger voice thing, it kind of gives out after a little bit. I, I don't, I can't talk all day. And the second thing is like, gosh, you mess up in, at the end of a sentence and you had good momentum going into that sentence. So as a producer, how do you deal with that? And like, how you know hesitant are you to tell this person who's literally giving you their time to do this project and all that to be like, Hey, excuse me, can we go back, uh, you know, one minute and do that? Like, take me through that whole process of how you deal with mess ups. Uh, it, it does vary by individual. We uh, we try to do a punch edit, which which means that you you let them go ahead and finish the sentence or finish the phrase. You've heard the mistake, you know it's back here. And uh, if I can if I can get them to go back and just read with themselves that same passage, then chances are we can lift out just the word or phrase or part of a word that they botched, and we can just very seamlessly put that in. Uh, if someone's got the momentum, I don't want to stop them. I, I, I definitely want to let them continue. There's nothing worse for their confidence than to literally stop them mid-sentence. And I've seen producers do this, and I've, I've never understood why. But, oh, no, 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 stop right there. No. Like, ah. You can't do it that way because the minute you do it, they, they've, you've kind of shaken their confidence. Yeah, it makes them nervous. It does. And after two or three times, they're, they you can tell a noticeable difference in how they read. They just they get more timid. They, mm. they start making a lot more mistakes. Uh, it's, if, uh, if you convince them they're screwing up while they're doing it, they'll deliver that to you and, and it'll just, it'll just get worse and worse. And, and I, yeah. I've had some that we had to abandon the project cause they got two or three chapters in and, you know, and they felt like they were doing such a poor job that they just said, no, I can't keep doing this. Uh, so yeah, you have to be careful The there was, there was one artist on this project and I, I won't, I won't say who it was, but, um, it really threw them that we were reading from the NIV because this is someone who grew up reading the King James. That, that's yeah, yeah. what they know. And, uh, and they were a little taken aback that we weren't going to let them read from the King James. And then as they got into it, every verse, they would put a word in that wasn't right because it was the word they knew from the King James version. And it's like, like Oh, that's not what it says. Yeah. <laughs> and so we'd have to go back and do the retake on it. Uh, but it's, yeah, it's, it's funny. You, you, uh, you, you definitely let them go as long as they're willing to go and keep the momentum before you want to interrupt. All right. That, that's awesome to kind of hear that. Cause again, I know some people probably lead, read a little bit out of time because maybe they want to give a lot of energy to it. And I guess to that end, I always like, for whatever reason, again, I haven't listened to a lot of audiobooks, but for instance, 12 Rules for Life is read by Jordan Peterson. Mm -hmm. And I love that because Jordan Peterson doesn't have the most pleasing voice to listen to. It's Canadian, kind of cracky, you know, those types of things. And it's like, but he's reading it. And at different points in the book, he has, he's actually getting upset. And you can hear that in his voice. Now, if there had been a professional, you know, silky smooth audiobook reader, would it have been as good? Maybe like, you know, would have been good in some ways, but like you want to hear the author actually read it when it's nonfiction, when it's fiction, you want somebody that can do the different accents and kind of carry people along and do all those different things. But from your perspective, when it comes to nonfiction, are you always defaulting to wanting the actual author to read their words? Are the authors actually like excited? Do they want to read their own words or would they rather be like, look, I'm the writer. They're the talker. Let the talker talk. What does that look like? That's actually changed a lot. That that's the that was the biggest change in my world uh, over the pandemic uh, that has stuck. Pre-pandemic, I would say probably forty to forty-five percent of our front list books were read by the author. Uh, now it's pushing more like ninety to ninety-five percent. Wow! And I, I people had more time to do it. Uh, you know, in twenty 2020 twenty and twenty twenty-one, and so it kind of stuck. And, and I think part of that too is the. Uh, the, the literary agents out there have decided that this is something that we should be doing. Mm -hmm. and so now you get a lot more contracts where it's in there that, that their client is going to read. Uh, and, and that's fine. I think for, uh, for a lot of books, it makes sense. I think if you've got an author who can deliver that content and they seem authentic and they have a voice, it doesn't have to be a professional voice. It doesn't have to be that pleasing of a voice. As long as their voice doesn't get in the way, it's fine. Mm -hmm. 
the minute their voice gets in the way, that's a problem. And, and that's, that's a really difficult conversation to have. Uh, and, and it happens. It happens, you know, as many books as we do, it's, it's going to happen sometimes that you've got an author who, for whatever reason, no one has told them, you got this really awful voice. (laughs) (laughs) Or, uh, you know, some of the more painful ones I can recall, I've had a few that, uh, that were dyslexic and uh, they get into the booth and they can't finish the sentence. Uh, and more than not, once you sit down and talk with them about it and say, look, you, you know, this isn't working. They'll say, yeah, my agent said I need to do this or my wife said I need to do this or my church said I need to do that. You know, someone told them they need to do it and, and they believed them. And then they got into it and realized they really shouldn't. Uh, yeah, I, I could see that being rough. That's always an awkward conversation to have when you, when you yeah. kind of bring that up with somebody. But it's like, gosh, can we have some levels of self-awareness here? Like if the first time you ever hear that you can't sing is at your audition on American Idol, like that's a problem. That means you're surrounded by a bunch of people that hate you, that they let you go on this show and absolutely embarrass yourself. Well, we'll make this last question of the day because I know you got stuff going on the rest of the day today. But let's talk about future projects. What are some things that, that have got you really, really ginned up? Some things that are, you know, in the offing maybe for, you know, for 2023 or even beyond that. And I want spoilers. Okay. I want you to tell us about stuff that may even get you in trouble. That's how far I want us to go. Cause if you hung with us for this entire hour of the interview, let's get a payoff here. Oh man. Okay. Um, gosh, I wish I had, uh, I wish I'd made some notes about this. Uh, I'll tell you one that, that we've got coming that, that I'm very excited about. Uh, if you're familiar with the, uh, there's a English theologian named N.T. Wright. Of course. Yeah. Wright is a fantastic writer, uh, but no one ever really hears him, you know, unless they see interviews. It, it's he's not the kind of guy that you you get on a on an audiobook very often. Yeah, he has actually worked out a his own translation of the New Testament, uh, which is is based on. Uh, I mean, it's based on good scholarship. But we just got through recording him doing that in the UK. It's mm. fantastic. It's absolutely mm. fantastic. So that there's a spoiler there because it's not coming out for months. <laughs> you, yeah. you can't even pre-order it till probably mid next year. But uh, that one is going to be really, really good. Um, I, there are we've got some some authors who typically don't read their own that are getting more interested in getting in the studio. Uh, Max Licato is our biggest author, has been mm. for for decades, and uh, Max has I think only narrated two of his books in the past. Uh, but I know for sure he's going to do his next one, uh, which is kind of exciting for us because we don't usually get to get him in the studio. Um, so yeah, there's, mm, I'm trying to think of any good, any dirt. I don't have any good dirt. (laughs) You know what? I sprung that on you here at the end, right? I never give anybody my questions before him, but I'm literally just spitballing all these random questions. So We've got each other's emails, so you can just email me. As you think of dirt and stuff like that, I will just know it, and I will just feel so satisfied that no one else does. Be like, yes, I know this information. But, Gabe, I really appreciate all the access today and kind of letting us weave into and out of a bunch of different subjects, but that's all for me. Is there anything else you want to get off your chest? No, man, it's fun. I really appreciate the time and, uh, and you know, Get your get your listeners to go out there and buy that country gospel product. We, we really want that New Testament to get in a lot of fans. Absolutely, guys. That is going to be in the show notes. And on Amazon, you can get the you know digital version that you can download or you can get it like this. I mean, to be honest with you, if this isn't in Cracker Barrel, this is like the most Cracker Barrel thing possible because you're literally buying it in CDs and you got folks that love to listen to it on their CD players and all that. But Gabe Wicks, thank you so much for coming on a Daunted Life of Man's podcast. Pleasure. Thank you. There you go, guys. Hope you enjoyed my time with Gabe Wicks. But before we let you go, we are going to do a quick resilience boost. At Undaunted Life, our mission is equipping men to push back darkness with content that forges spiritual, mental, and physical resilience. So the only link I've got for you today, I've got a link to Country Gospel. That is uh, the whole thing that we spent most of the interview talking about. But again, on Amazon, you can buy the audio version that comes through via like streaming or whatever that service is, or you can actually get the physical CD. So this might be a really cool gift for someone in your life that's maybe a little bit more old school. They really like the CD version or something like that. It's really, really a fantastic fantastic gift. Thank you guys so much for listening to the show. We do appreciate it. Wherever you're listening to this, please subscribe, rate, and leave us a positive five-star review. If you want me to come speak live at your event or on your podcast, just shoot me an email to info at undaunted.life. That's I-N-F-O at undaunted.life. Follow us on Instagram and like us on Facebook and check out our website for everything else, including how to donate to keep more content like this coming your way. Just go to www.undaunted.life. And as always, we want to thank the band August Burns Red for allowing us to use their music for our content. The music on this podcast is our song, Cutting the Ties, which is off their 10th anniversary re-recording of their album leveler the links are in the description i'm your host kyle thompson remember keep pushing back darkness 
keep forging spiritual, mental, and physical resilience, keep seeking the Lion of Judah.